Good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Any, uh, any fans of this weather in the building? All right. You're my friends, okay? Anyone not like this weather? Okay, you're best friends with my wife because uh, she is not a fan of hail and thunderstorms. But the inner storm chaser in me is like, this is awesome. Let's go play outside. And it, it wasn't that great yesterday after all. Uh, if this is your first time here, welcome out. We want to make this church your church, so in the seat backs behind you, there's a connection card. If you fill it out, uh, you can turn it in the back, and we would love to shake hands with you and meet you. Uh, Where we find ourselves today is in week 10 of our Story of the Bible series. Now, we're just moving right along. Uh, We have arrived at the cross. So last week, we discussed how Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the capital city, to bring his kingdom and start this work that all of creation had been waiting for, for Jesus to die on the cross and reconcile us back to the Father and restore our relationship with him. But what we're going to do today is we're going to look at two different places in Scripture. We're going to look at Hebrews 11, I mean Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, and then we're going to look at Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Now, that first portion of Scripture is going to show us how we ought to live our lives, following the example of Jesus in the way that he pursued the cross. The second portion of scripture is going to give us a a better description of who Jesus is in the midst of difficult circumstances. And I hope to tie those two together. Uh, But if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 12. And will everyone please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Please remain standing, and let's go to Mark chapter 4, please, verse 35. Or look at the screen. It's pretty convenient. Verse 35 says this, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him, they took with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the cern, Jesus was, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to him, them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The word of the Lord. You may be seated. With the remaining time I, that we have together, I want to bring two thoughts to life. One, the cross displays God's radical intervention for our radical brokenness. And number two, Jesus enduring death on the cross models for us how we should run our race. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that 
you love us, Father. What a beautiful reminder, Father, from Dr. Brown, Lord, that, that as far as east is from the west, God, so far you have removed our sins from us, God. And that we can't quantify your love for us, Father. And that you would go to the extremes, God, death on the cross, Father, to rescue us and save us, Lord. Pray that as we open up your word, Lord, that it would speak to us, Father, and refresh us, Lord, and convict us, and that it would fall on good soil. In Jesus' name, amen. In Mark chapter 4, we see Jesus telling the disciples to get into the boat because they were supposed to go to the other side. Um, And while they get into the boat, we're familiar with this, all of a sudden, a storm comes. Not just a storm that makes you want to snuggle and watch Netflix, uh, a terrifying, disastrous storm. Um, I remember two years ago, I was caught in a flash flood in Orlando uh, with my then fiance and, and two friends. And up until that point, me and my old roommate, Josh, we were amateur storm chasers. Like if the tornado siren came on, we would give each other that dumb young look and say, let's go find a tornado. Um, we've come a long way. One of those things is still true. Uh, and so, uh, we were in this flood, and I'd never experienced anything like this. The, the water was rising all the way to the entrance of my door. The car was bobbing. Uh, everybody else in the car was scared. I had to, like, you know, look not scared, but I was terrified. And, and by God's grace, like, we were able to get off the road and get to safety, and, you know, the back of my car was flooded, but it could have been worse. Um, and so after experiencing that, I had this newfound appreciation for how deadly terrible storms can be. Now, Jesus is on this boat with his disciples, and all of a sudden, it starts storming terribly to the point that they're fearing for their lives. Now, many people yesterday were caught in this hailstorm, and it was thunderous and and just terrifying. Imagine being in that sort of environment, a little bit more elevated, but there's nowhere to run to. You're on a boat in the middle of the water. There's no refuge, there's no solace. And so they're terrified. And so in this moment, they're fearing that they're going to die. Now, storms could also represent different circumstances or things that we're going through in life. Like maybe you find yourself in a storm right now where life is just kind of raining down on you and and you're feeling that sort of affliction, that sort of suffering, that sort of pain, and you're wondering to yourself, man, When is this ever going to let up? Now, in Hebrews chapter 12, this isn't unfamiliar territory. The author of Hebrews is writing this letter to an early church that was experiencing their own storms. They were experiencing their fair share of suffering and afflictions on behalf of their commitment to Christ. In fact, we find out in, in a few chapters earlier that a handful of these people were murdered for their faith. They were robbed of any ounce of comfort and security. And they were made public display of ridicule. And so when we get to verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the author is trying to encourage this early church, hey, despite the afflictions, despite the sufferings, let's keep moving forward. But let's, let's pause there. And see what that means. What what does he mean by so great a cloud of witnesses? Well, we know that when we see the word therefore, we ask ourselves, what is the therefore, therefore? Yes, come on. And it makes us kind of go back to the previous chapter. 
And in chapter 11, we're, we're given this extensive list of heroes of the faith who through faith and in faith did amazing things, experienced marvelous things with God. And some of those names we've covered in this series, like Abraham and Sarah, fathers of the faith who God spoke to them and gave them this covenant promise that uh, through their lineage, an offspring is going to redeem and save us. We know that's Jesus. We see names like Moses, who led the mass exodus of, people, of the people of Israel out of slavery. People by faith conquered kingdoms, stopped the mouths of lions, escaped the edge of the sword, and this impressive list goes on. And the author is asking us to take this into consideration. In other words, since we are surrounded by people who've experienced what you're experiencing, we have this long-running list of people who ran this race that you're running and have finished. Some finished better than others, but regardless, they finished. This is supposed to stir up hope in our lives. And there's this huge element of trust that's being demanded in our lives. The ideal response after reading or hearing this, should be something like this. God, this cloud of witnesses, they are great. You moved in Abraham's life, in Isaac's life. You rescued your people from Egypt. You wonderful, wonderfully moved in all these people's lives. I can trust that you can move in my life. I can trust that you can deliver from my storm and suffering. I can trust that you're capable of delivering me from my sin and pain. However, what tends to happen is that we understand this in our mind, but it doesn't take root in our hearts. And when this happens, the conversation shifts to something like this. God, I know you moved wonderfully in these people's lives. I, I see it, I read it. God, I know that you can move mountains, but, but I'm not so sure you can rescue me from my afflictions, from my doubt from my fear, from my pain. I've heard stories of your goodness and faithfulness in other people's lives, but it's really hard to see it in my own. It doesn't look wonderful. It looks hopeless. And I can't help to think that the disciples in this moment were experiencing some form of hopelessness if they are crying out that they're going to die. The waves were breaking into the boat. Now, now, boating 101, the water is not supposed to come into the boat, okay? It's breaking in. Verse 37 says that it was filling with water. And they cried out that they were perishing. For a group of men that were experienced with the water and fishing, they knew what this environment was capable of. They probably had friends and other, you know, people that they, they knew of that had died boating on these waters. So serious for them. And what I've noticed is that it's all too easy to get distracted by immediate concerns and problems and lose sight of what God might be doing through you and for you. Because it seems like when we're in the thick of it, that issue, whatever it is that immediately consumes our mind, that's all we can think about. Like when you're going through heartbreak, all you can think about is heartbreak. When you're going through a rough patch at work, all you can think about is what you wish you could tell your boss and coworkers and not get fired for it. You know, you're thinking, man, how can I get out of here? 
when you're hurting in your mind, all you can think about is when is this torment ever going to end? When money is low, all you can think about is, man, when am I going to have enough money? <laughs> like, this isn't cutting it. And this can be, you know, whatever version of the story you want to tell yourself. But what I've noticed is that whatever issue is before us, that's usually what we are looking at. And the point here is that it's really hard to have an eternal perspective when we're not looking to eternity, but rather focusing on momentary afflictions. For this very reason, when we continue reading verse 1 of, of Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Um, in training for the Olympics, uh, runners used to tie weights to their bodies. Now, this sounds miserable. Uh, when it came time to run the race, they would lay aside every single weight, even their garments. They would just run naked. That's, that's first century Olympics. This is the language, the, the illustration of, of running a marathon that we see the author using in Hebrews chapter 12. And this is what we're being commanded to do. Lay aside every single weight. Now, here's the question that comes to mind. Well, what exactly is a weight? Well, a weight is an unnecessary burden that keeps you from finishing strong. A weight may not necessarily be sin, but it's something that's dragging you down. It's something that's keeping you from running this race with endurance, the way that we're called to do. I mean, at a simple level, it can be something like sports, video games, and social media. Maybe in and of themselves, they're probably not too detrimental to your spirituality, but if you consume enough of it, it could be flirting with idolatry and keep you from pursuing Christ the way we're called to. Other translations call this a, a burden, a very heavy load that we're never designed to carry. It also says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. I love the Greek word here. Uh, it's euperistatos. I always butcher that. This word means skillfully surrounding. Now, what the author is trying to illustrate is that we're, when we're running this race, this, this, this Christian life, there's a competitor that's running with us. There's an opponent that's trying to keep us from finishing strong. And so when we see this word cling so closely, it's giving way to this imagery that when you're running this race, there's an opponent that's trying to do everything in their power to keep you from finishing. It's skillfully surrounding you. The way that I like to think about it is if I'm running a marathon, which probably won't happen anytime soon, there's, there's someone that's probably not even in the race, my enemy, and all he's trying to do is wait for me at the finish line to keep me from crossing. And I'm being surrounded, it says. So no matter which way I'm trying to go, no matter which way I'm trying to evade the tactics of the enemy, sin, I'm surrounded by it. So what the author is saying, lay aside every weight because it's already hard enough to run this race with burdens you were never designed to carry, but also because sin is clinging so closely and it's trying to do everything in its power to take you out of this race. When you're going through life, it can be really difficult to run with endurance when sin is constantly trying to keep you from finishing. And here's what I've noticed in my own life. Um, that the things that cling so closely to me or the things that I surround myself with, 
if I'm not careful, can wrongfully shape the way I see the Lord. Because it can be incredibly hard to have this idea of how things are going to play out when I'm right in the middle of it, focusing on whatever difficult circumstance I'm in. Whether it's your own personal storm, your own suffering, your own affliction, in the middle of practicing the sin you know you should be putting to death. And the disciples were experiencing this on the boat. All they could focus on was this deadly storm. And can you blame them? Clinging so closely to fear that they partnered with the lie that they're going to perish. And this is what sin desires to do. It wants to cling so closely that it will distract you, distort truth and reality, and remove any ounce of hope left and convinces us that things aren't going to work out. We're going to perish. And it's really hard to endure and follow Jesus with unnecessary weight, baggage, and shame. So what is the weight and sin that you're carrying in your life that the Lord is calling you to lay aside? The author of Hebrews is urging this early church, lay aside every weight and every sin that keeps you from running the race, that despite the persecution, despite the affliction, despite the suffering, keep moving forward. In this moment, on this boat, if you can imagine with me, where things seem so hopeless, where for the disciples all they could see is the storm and death on the horizon, they unknowingly model for us what our response should be in difficult times. They looked to Jesus. How does Jesus respond in the boat? Well, he was asleep on the cushion. Uh, this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is ever asleep. I should tell you something about who God is, that he likes naps in stormy boat water. No, (laughs) don't take that. When the scripture is urging us to look to Jesus, as we continue reading, one of the reasons why is because there is something destructive about only looking at life through your own sinful broken lens. Your perspective is thrown off. Instead of viewing things from this place of God's truth in mind, we interpret according to our feelings and how we believe things are going to work out. And if we're not careful, this can be very, very deceptive. Puritan author John Owens puts it this way, a constant view of the glory of Christ will revive our souls and cause our spiritual lives to flourish and thrive. The more we behold the glory of Christ by faith now, the more spiritual and heavenly will be the state of our souls. The reason why spiritual life in our souls decays and withers is because we fill our minds with full of other things. But when the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and his glory, these things will be expelled. And this is how our spiritual lives is revived. When we continue reading verse 2, it says, The reason why we can look to Jesus is because he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. This word founder is better rendered as the forerunner or pioneer. In other words, Jesus has gone before you and has run the race that you're experiencing. 
He's experienced every single trial and tribulation known to man and did not give in and modeled 100% faithfulness to God despite his own sufferings and afflictions. That We have a living God that we can look to who we can literally say, man, God, you, if you've been through this and made it to the other side, I can look to you and have this confidence that it's going to work out. That's what makes the Christian hope so much better than any other hope the world has to offer is that our hope is rooted on who God says he is and what he's done. And the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow is unchanging. And if he's been faithful in one moment of life, he continues to be faithful through all of the moments, regardless of what we're going through. This word founder describes one who goes ahead to blaze the trail and overcome barriers. When we look at perfecter, this word communicates the idea that Jesus is the supreme and perfect example of faith. And this is very, very good news. This means that our faith is founded on Jesus. He is the one that started this work in you. Our faith rests not on our own accomplishments but, or strengths, but his. And the reason why this is very good news is because when we are running this race, pursuing victory and waging war against sin, we don't do it out of our own strength. We do it out of his. When the enemy is trying to take us out and convince you that your own strength, you are not powerful enough to finish this race, the truth is you are not. But Jesus is. And he is the founder and perfecter, the author and the finisher. The work that he started, he will finish despite the storms and sufferings. After all, it was Jesus who said, let us go over to the other side. And he calms the storm just like he said he would. And they get to the other side. These two words, founder and perfecter, they're centered around the cross. The cross is where Jesus' faith in God was put to the greatest test. It is at the cross where we see this on display. Jesus enduring suffering and shame, and it was by faith that he endured. At the cross, we see that his blood was shed for our forgiveness. In the cross, we see him being nailed in exchange for our righteousness. At the cross, we see Jesus experiencing suffering, affliction, and torture. And what did he do in the midst of his own suffering and affliction? What we're being called to do. He looked to the Father. Jesus ran his race and endured. He finished and he rose from the dead, conquering the enemy that is trying to keep us from finishing. We are called to look to Jesus because he endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Jesus ran the race that you're running, and he finished it. In fact, on the cross, he said, it is finished. And when it looked like sin and death had won, like there was no ounce of hope, there was no way we're going to come back from this one, Jesus displayed the ultimate comeback, raising from the dead. And in the cross, we see God's radical intervention, him enduring the cross for our radical brokenness. For every single weight, every single sin. So that I could lay down every weight and sin in my life. Jesus is not only our example of faith. 
He is the object of our faith. Here's what happens when we look to Jesus. Perspective shifts and expectations are rearranged. I think I'm I'm learning that in my own life, a, a big part of this Christian journey is just learning to manage healthy expectations and healthy perspective. Like, like when I can have rooted in my soul that, that this is how the Lord works, that, that the presence of, of pain and suffering is, is not the absence of his love and grace over my life, but could it be that he's doing something in me, it changes the way that I endure. When I can set my eyes on Jesus, I'm, I'm trying to remind my mind and my body to look to him and how I should conduct myself and set the right boundaries for how I should view the situation. Because when I'm looking to myself, I'm, I'm, I'm broken. I view life through this sinful lens. And instead of saying something like, Lord, I know that you're taking me through this because you want to mold character in me. It's more like, Lord, I don't, you're, you're, you're on the back burner right now. And, and I'm hurting and I'm afflicted. And instead of trying to find refuge in him, I'm, I'm looking for refuge in other things. But when we look to Jesus, perspective shifts. Expectations are rearranged. Hope arises. When we look to Jesus, we become more like him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When I'm looking to Jesus, something mysterious and supernatural happens where I become like the object I'm beholding in my life. When I look to Jesus, I am looking to his example in how I should live my life. And as I subject my life to his rule and reign, I begin to look more and more like him. And the things that once had a hold on me no longer bring me down. Because it's no longer me walking, but it's Christ in me. The hope of glory, hope arises when we look to Jesus. And this comes from the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now here's what happens when we don't look to Jesus. If we don't look to Jesus, it becomes really hard to lay aside every weight and every sin. When we don't look to Jesus, what you're doing is you're going into a cage match against sin, and when sin wages war against sin, sin always wins. And when we don't look to Jesus, we'll look to ourselves to try to find whatever security or hope we're looking for and will only come up empty. When we don't look to Jesus, instead of being free to run, we will carry unnecessary burdens. We will carry heavy loads that we were never designed to carry. I know, I know one of them where I, I'm thinking of is, is control. How I want to have control over my life how I want to order and structure things in such a way where, where I get my desired outcome. And what I'm learning is that, man, when that control is out of sync, something is disrupted in my soul. 
where I no longer feel that I have like this sense of security and safety that I've been longing for. Where now I feel like, man, God's holding something back on me or, or he's not pleased with me because why else would things be, you know, crumbling around me? And control was never a burden you were designed to carry. You were designed to be in relationship and fellowship with the one who controls everything. When the disciples are in this boat trying to take matters into their own hands, I mean, what can they do? I believe part of the reason why Jesus takes them into this place is to reveal to them that there is nothing in your power that you can do to sustain yourself, save yourself, be any sorts of self-sufficient. All of your hope, all of your refuge, all of your security comes from me alone. And the minute that you take your eyes off of this storm and run to me, I have the power, I have the authority to calm the storms. I have the power, I have the authority to bring hope into the hopeless. When we don't look to Jesus, it becomes hard to lay aside every weight. We will carry unnecessary burdens. And what this will eventually lead to is burnout. I mean, if you've ever tried running with weights, I don't recommend it. (laughs) Uh, And if you do it for longer than you're supposed to, it's going to take a toll on your body. I think for a lot of us, man, it's like we're running with these weights on our bodies, and then we get home, and we we just never take it off. It goes everywhere with us. Weights, watching TV, sin, clinging so closely, scrolling through social media. Weights, hopping into the car. Sin, clinging so closely, going into work. It's a very, very destructive way to live our lives. And what it will eventually do is lead to burnout and hopelessness. Because we're trying to faithfully follow Jesus with weights we were never meant to carry and bring on this journey. If we don't look to Jesus, we will partner with the sin that clings so closely. And when we partner with that sin, it usually leads to destructive behaviors. When we partner with this sin, that my identity is found in relationships We will pursue this destructive behavior that I have to be in a relationship so that I can be fully known and fully complete. If we partner with this sin that I can only have hope when I, my budget is right, when the money is correct, we'll keep pursuing these things. And it will eventually give way to destructive behaviors and we'll arrive at this place where these things were never meant to satisfy us or complete us. When we partner with sin, it distorts our perspective. It distracts us from finishing this race. For the disciples, when they partnered with this sin, that they're going to perish. Well, actually, we take a step back. It said that that, that fear arose in them. So when they partnered with fear, it led to this thought that they're going to perish. When we don't look to Jesus, it becomes incredibly easy to look at other things. 
becomes incredibly easy to see whatever's on the horizon, whatever's in front of us. And sin, sin is not your friend. It is your enemy. And it desires to take you out of this race and keep you from faithfully following Jesus. And if we don't look to Jesus, we will look to other things to rescue us from our affliction, from our suffering, things that were never designed to do that. So we're called to look no further than Jesus, the living Christ, conquering every single sin, every single weight on the cross. When you experience Jesus like this, perspective and expectations get rearranged. When you look to Jesus like this, everything else seems so small. When the disciples experienced Jesus this way, they could never look at him the same. Because everywhere they went, they were with the guy that could calm storms and tell the waves to be still. They were with the guy who displayed control and authority over all of creation. When we look to Jesus, we're looking to the God who has the power and authority to silence the storms and guide us to the finish line, towards the finish line, and get us to the other side. So we let hope arise because we serve a wonderful God. Mark 4 ends with this storm being stilled and the disciples getting to the other side, just like Jesus said. And I love what happens. They begin to worship. This godly fear arose. Who is this that can calm the winds and the waves? I believe one of the ways that we look to Jesus is by practicing a lifestyle of worship. Because when we're worshiping God, I believe what it does is that it takes our eyes off of ourselves and whatever's in front of us and makes us look up to Jesus. And it gets our eyes off of ourselves. I heard this wonderful illustration from another pastor that, that, that suffering and afflictions and, and, and having this attitude of, of self-centeredness and, and not looking to Jesus can be like a house with, with a flat roof. That, that when it begins to, to rain or hail or storm, it's only a matter of time before this roof caves in. But when we practice this attitude of worship and looking to Jesus, all of, our, all of a sudden our, our house goes from a flat roof to this vertical one that's looking to God. And now the things that are raining on us are just falling to the side and nourishing the soil around us and letting God grow whatever it is that he wants to do in us and through us. When we practice, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of we look to Jesus and practically we just worship the king. And if that's unfamiliar to you, uh, it, it looks a lot like what we're doing here. I mean, one of the reasons we, we gather is because we want to worship God for, for who he is and what he has done. Not necessarily for how good the music can make me feel, but how good God has been to us. And I've noticed that it's really hard to think when I'm praising, when I'm audibly talking out loud. And if I spend enough time with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, my mind, my heart, my soul, will catch up to this truth that's always been there, that he is good, that he can keep me and protect me, that he's the founder and protector, that he can get me to the other side. Church, I'm encouraging you that as you look to Jesus, spend time in extended worship, 
Practice this lifestyle of worshiping God, taking your eyes off of the immediate storm and afflictions and suffering and saying, Lord, I praise you. Lord, I love you. Audibly, audibly. We fix our eyes on Jesus because he is the example and object of our faith. Jesus' unwavering commitment to God led him to the cross. Where at the cross, he was crucified as one who was clinging all the weight and all the sin that I should have taken to my cross to die my sin. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, laying aside all the sins and burdens and rendering them powerless. They no longer have power over you. So that I could lay down all of my burdens, all of my shame, all of my pain, so that I could look to him and nothing else and place my faith in him and trust that he could rescue me from all the things that would keep me from finishing strong. He can rescue from all the storms that would distract me and try to take me out. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And at the cross, we see God's goodness. We see God's faithfulness on display. At the cross, that is the ultimate witness that gives us the power to lay aside all the sins that cling so closely, to lay aside every burden and look to him and nothing else. Let's pray.